BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andrea Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Well, it's June in 2020. And if you're like me, you probably are super glad that the school year is over. (laughs) I think I was more excited about it than my kids. (laughs) Zoom school is not for everyone, and it certainly has made it really difficult for a lot of us who have small children, and it has made us appreciate what an amazing and difficult job teachers have. So as we send our kids to either online classes or summer camps if it's possible, or somewhere else, hopefully maybe even to their grandparents' houses, maybe it's time to think about education and think about what's right and what's wrong and how we can make it better. So I wanted to bring an innovator in education onto the show, and I found Tony Wagner. He's currently the Senior Research Fellow at the Learning Policy Institute, but previously he spent 20 years at Harvard in a variety of positions, including as an expert in residence at the Harvard Innovation Lab, and he also founded and co-directed for a decade the Change Leadership Group at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He has spent time as a high school teacher, as a K-8 principal, as a university professor in teacher education, and this is a man who hated school. So who better to really think about how to totally change education than someone who himself hated school, did not do well in a traditional education, tried a number of different schools, and then finally found his place as an innovator and educator at one of the best schools in the world. Tony Wagner, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Pleasure to be with you. So in reading your book, uh, it, it starts off with a description of how much you hated school, how boring you found it, how tedious, and how you didn't do well. And it made me wonder whether it takes someone who does not thrive in a conventional or traditional education to really recognize what it takes to be a good teacher. Well, I think there are many good teachers who had a perfectly okay experience in school. But uh, there is a small group of us who really seek to reimagine education, reimagine teaching and learning for the 21st century. And it's quite interesting when I talk to people 
who have similar points of view, I find over and over again that very often they also were ill-served by our industrial model of education. Yeah. And, you know, I was a person who, by all traditional measures, was well served by it. I was able to, you know, get very good grades and, you know, win a bunch of awards in high school. And yet, you know, I, I, I really didn't love learning until I got to college and things got more difficult. And so, you know, I kind of, it kind of now reading your book, knowing what I understand about life, it, it makes me wonder if, if I hadn't, if it hadn't come so easily to me, would I have developed some of the life skills that have proven to be more important, you know, resilience and determination and whatever, whatever you might want to call them, just essentially the passion that you need in order to bring a project to fruition? Well, actually, there's, I think there's two different challenges here. One is finding and pursuing a passion. And, and uh, the high school curriculum doesn't make much time or space for that. And then the other is learning perseverance, tenacity, what Angela Duckworth calls grit. To me, those capabilities are often best learned in an experience of trial and error learning, where the learner suffers a setback and uh, even perhaps fails, using a conventional term, and tries again. I think a lot of the best learning is trial and error. And the, the, the challenge for young people who, who find learning very easy in high school, get all A's, is they've never had a setback. They, they've, and the, even worse today, kids are being pressed by their parents to be perfect little children and to never, ever make a mistake in or out of school. But I really do believe that it is that combination of having a certain kind of uh, a passion, which, which partly fuels perseverance, but you also learn resilience to get back up again after you've fallen down, whether you've fallen off your bike or you've fallen in your first efforts to stand as a two-year-old. So to me, the two go together. There's got to be a passion, a drive to learn, to move forward, but that then at the same time, that helps one overcome the setbacks and, and to continue. And what we're talking about is, in, to some extent, captured by Carol Dweck's growth mindset, you know, this idea that our intelligence in particular, but also other abilities are not fixed, they are rather, to some extent, malleable by how much we practice. And yet a lot of the interventions that have tried to induce a growth mindset in kids have failed. And I wonder if, if you have any thoughts about, you know, what are the conditions under which whether it's praise or uh, how how achievement is is doled out, that really foster that what you're talking about this kind of you know love of learning, but that also get sort of foiled in a in a very kind of traditional grade based you know standardized test type education. Well, I think that one of the great challenges in our current model of schooling is that it really doesn't allow people to, first of all, discover their passions, as I, as I mentioned a moment ago, which is what drives us to try and try again. But secondly, doesn't allow do-overs. You know, you get, you get a paperback and it's 79. Well, you know what happens to those papers. Kids read the grades and you know, the paper is slipped into the trash can on the way out the door. There's no learning through trial and error 
in that kind of setting, which I think is critical for developing the muscles of perseverance, tenacity, understanding that, you know, a draft is perhaps just the first draft and that you get critiqued and you you keep working towards a, a higher level of perfection. So the whole idea that we're kind of sorting kids with grades on a bell curve and, you know, you got a certain number of mistakes and you're off to the left side of the bell curve, uh, you get a lot of mistakes and you're considered a, a failure. Uh, but, you know, in, in the world of innovation, everything is learned through iteration, through trial and error. And to me, we, we need to take some of our lessons about how to reimagine education from the 21st, for the 21st century from the world of innovation, which I studied in previous books. And, you know, I think that we are in a time where a lot of parents are finding that they are taking a, <laughs> a reluctant uh, front seat in terms of educating their children. And it's been very clear to me uh, how easy it is for a parent to look back on their own education and just think, okay, you know, you just need to learn this. I know you just need to, we just not need to do the multiplication tables. You just need to memorize it. Like, I know it's going to be boring and you just have to do it. And then, you know, reading your book and then just seeing my son's reaction and like, he's six and he already hates school. And I just think like, this is, this is, this is wrong and this is not going to work. And, you know, I, I really loved your descriptions of that, I think, friend of your dad's who gave you or sent you a transistor radio in parts that you had to put together. And that became the first time that you realized that you actually really liked learning and that you learned a lot. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, the, the current situation we find ourselves in and maybe help us who are parents um, try to think about what we should be doing in order to engender some of these changes that you suggest in this book and your previous work? Well, that's, I think, a key question. Parents are increasingly frustrated and fed up trying to sort of cram lessons down kids' throats. And to me, the opportunity here is, is an important one. One of the worst side effects of schooling for many kids is the loss of curiosity. You know, the average five-year-old asks 100 questions a day, and nearly every child that age thinks of himself or herself as an artist. But then something happens. We call it school. Because the longer kids are in school, the more they become obsessed with getting the right answers as opposed to asking their good questions. And fewer and fewer and fewer think of themselves as creative or artistic in any way. Okay, so now we have the, this crisis where suddenly standardized tests are out the window. They're gone, whether they're SATs or whether they're state accountability tests, which creates this new space for both parents and teachers to pay attention to what really matters. And it's not the test score. What really matters is the continuing development and nurturance of curiosity. Because what I found in my earlier work is that uh, curiosity, which is a kind of play for children, evolves over time as kids find and develop real interests. So play becomes passion. And in time, that for a young adult becomes a sense of purpose. So from play to passion to purpose, the driving fuel of that is curiosity. One of the things that I find innovators have most often in common, no matter what field they're from, is that they're extremely curious about lots of things all around them. So the challenge here, I think, is for parents to say, all right, be very practical. 
keep a question journal. Write down the questions that occurred to you through the day. I used to keep a little three by five card in my wall in my shirt pocket as I went around teaching and you know I was screwing up all kinds of things. I had all kinds of questions about what I was doing as a young inexperienced teacher with a master's from Harvard that was useless in terms of learning how to teach. And so the same idea applies here. Write down your questions, write down kind of what intrigues you or a concern you might have. And then invite the parent or the teacher to sit down periodically and say, okay, circle the question that kind of keeps coming back. Is something interesting or worthwhile? Now let's make time to go to the computer and let's learn how to do a good internet search. Because the key of good internet searching, as you well know as a researcher, is asking the right question, of course. And so you learn uh, by someone taking your questions seriously, how to frame them in such a way that you can extend and further your own learning. And then I think that another step is once children have had a chance to do that, maybe an hour a day, um, to periodically kind of report back to maybe their parents, maybe to grandparents, maybe even have a little peer conversation. Well, here's what I learned on the internet today. What did you learn? So that learning then, of course, becomes social, because I think learning is both individual and social, and that you learn to communicate what you've learned in the process of having to connect with others. If the learning just stays in your head, it rarely can be articulated clearly without multiple tries. Yeah, and you you describe in your book there is a there's this um, special ingredient in some teachers that are not there in all of them, and and that is that they convey that they care about their students. Uh, you sort of describe a couple of English teachers and and their differences about how you know when you really felt that they cared about you, they were more effective. And I I have to say nobody cares more about their kids than the parents, and yet most of us parents are finding ourselves completely ineffective. <laughs> As educators, and I wondered if there was, a, if you could sort of tell us a little bit about how you can convey to a student that you care about them, and maybe it's too complicated when it comes from a parent, but without sort of like you know making the love conditional, if you know what I mean. Yeah, well, that's the problem with parenting, of course. We parents, and now I'm a grandparent, are conflicted because uh, it's like you really don't want your child to fall off the bike and skin his or her knee. It's like, can I, can I somehow protect my child from that? No, the answer is no, you can't. And it's the same with learning. That part of caring is letting go, uh, is not being overly protective. I think many parents today uh, are trying to be overprotective and or pushing their children too hard in a certain direction, all in the name of caring. The best advice I ever got as a young parent of three children, was to parent as though they were children of my best friends. So there was just enough distance so that I wasn't overly invested in there being some replication of me or some kind of success, that I was simply interested in how do I help them unfold and blossom. So that's a different kind of caring than what many of us as parents and bring to the relationship where we're perhaps our caring is over either overprotective or overinvested in a certain outcome. 
You know, I think I think it's really interesting how you um, explain that, and and it sort of brings me to another topic that I think is kind of related now, um, because in a sense you were raised also by surrogate parents because you went to boarding school um, and you hated boarding school, but then you loved camp. And, you know, you went to this camp, um, Mowgli, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, and, uh, you know, I read the Jungle Book, but I never listened to it as an audio book. Uh, and you were there for like eight weeks in the summer. It wasn't like, okay, you went away for a week. It was kind of a, a summer boarding boarding school or boarding camp. So can you tell us a little bit about why the boarding school was ineffective and yet the camp, which had many of the same features, really changed your life? Well, I think it, it's a really interesting question because uh, certainly at, at camp, I learned a great deal. The boarding school I went to was an all-male boarding school. And I believe in single-sex education, but only for girls, <laughs> not for boys. Single-sex schools for boys, I think, uh, can be breeding grounds for bullying or a certain kind of sadism, be it petty or sometimes really quite overt. Uh, and then you add on top of that culture, which is kind of a toxic culture in most cases, where it's kind of being macho, proving yourself on the athletic field by being tougher, bigger, stronger than anybody else. Then you add layer on top of that, that school is has a very, very limited range of ways in which you can show your quote successful, unquote. That the skills and uh, that we kind of select for in school is a tiny fraction of the human capability. Where camp broadened my horizon. In camp, you know, I could try a lot of different things from riflery to crafts to, uh, of course, becoming a very competent swimmer, a rower, a canoeist. Uh, and in my particular case, for whatever set of reasons, I took a particular interest in mastering axemanship. Now, the other thing that was wonderful about this camp, it's it, it, it sort of emerged in 1910 at about the same time, actually 20, 10 years prior to the scouting movement, but it was it had the same concept of earning the equivalent of what we in scouting would call merit badges or what in that camp they called ribbons. And here was what was so wonderful and so different about school versus camp. In school, you're on the bell curve, right? You get a C minus, you're a you know, crummy kid, crummy student. Uh, if you don't do well in the athletic field, same deal. You, you know, it's, it's really kind of a sink or swim environment. Whereas in camp, you have this wide range of choices. You can choose where you want to put your effort and energy and, and where you think you might be successful and competent. And then you're not graded. I wasn't ever graded when I fell at tree in the wrong direction. We would talk about it. What went wrong? How would I do it differently next time? I was never graded, you know, on how sharp I got my axe. It was whether or not the axe did the job. So essentially, essentially, it was a kind of performance-based assessment. Like in the adult world, uh, you know, you're either competent or you, or you don't yet get the ribbon, or you don't yet get the driving license, or the pilot license, or the plumbing license. It, we don't want to fly with a C-minus airline pilot, right? Somebody who's pretty good at takeoffs but hasn't got the landing thing down. No, that is not how the adult world works, but that is the world of school. And, and the world of camp was actually a better mirror, interestingly, of how the adult world works than was school for me. 
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I thought that was really interesting because in some ways you could say that merit badges or these, you know, earning ribbons is just another way of, you know, rewarding a child for the things that they're doing. And so it's hard to see how different it is from getting good grades. But there, as you mentioned, there isn't a, it's, you know, it's a pass fail. So do you think that schools should move more to a kind of competency pass fail model? And what are the kind of implications of that? Well, I think a high school diploma should be a certificate of mastery. And you should have mastered both required badges, like say communication, scientific method, thinking like a historian, to give some examples, mathematical literacy. Those would all be required merit badges. And you would show perform you would have to le- reach a level of proficiency to get those badges, right? But you could take as much or as little time as you needed, and it wouldn't have to be in school. Learning would be 24-7, 365, no matter where you were, because you're working on your badge, just as you do in scouting. And, and then the second point is that you know clearly what you have to do to get the badge. And that was the case in camp. The, the performance criteria were crystal clear ahead of time, whereas very often in school, you don't really know what a an A paper looks like because you've never had one <laughs> and you've never seen one. And, and the teachers never said to you, all right, here's what, here's my performance standard. Here's what I expect. So in fact, the only three grades I can justify as an educator are A, B, or incomplete. The only F I recognize is the failure not to show up, the failure not to try. So from my point of view and in my teaching, I had a performance standard for my students. And it was met with a representative body of work, not an individual paper. This is critically important. And I wanted to see progress over time. But when they met my performance standard in their written work, that was earned to be. Now, A's, I think, should be really reserved for genuine excellence, which, as we all know, is uncommon. So it's a very different way of looking at both what a high school diploma should 
B, which is a collection of both required and elective merit badges, all with kind of valid credit. So the elective merit badges could be a merit badge in service or a merit badge in you know, entrepreneurship and so on. And in fact, I'm on the board of a, of a new national organization your listeners may want to know more about called the Mastery Transcript Consortium, mastery.org. And we are working now with over 350 high schools. Uh, initially, it began with some of the leading private schools in this country. Now it's including public schools and charter schools to create an entirely new kind of high school transcript that looks exactly like the one I just described. And in this extraordinary era, where suddenly large varieties of schools, both state and private, are saying, okay, SAT optional. We test optional has been true for a thousand schools for some years now. But now the University of California, their entire system will this week vote the regents on whether or not to make testing completely optional or, in fact, not even a part of the admission system. So we're at the dawn of a new era where young people for the first time may have a means to show their strengths uh, and to be able to demonstrate mastery in a variety of different ways through the use of a digital portfolio, through the use of uh, internships where they, where they get employers to talk of, about their performance or service-based projects and so on. So I think, uh, interestingly, the COVID crisis may hasten uh, the advent of, of a variety of new education innovations that will be for the better. I mean, it's certainly changing the way that I teach. Uh, you know, in this in this fall, I'm slated to teach uh, these foundational courses in biological psychology at um, where, you know the university that I work in. And traditionally, I've I've taught this course probably oh 10, 15, 10, 11 times, and I've always used a combination of multiple choice, short answer. You know, everybody gets the same test. I don't grade on a curve, but you know, it ends up being a normal distribution for the most part. And this time, I, because we're going online and I'm completely rethinking uh, the whole lecture model and, and trying to make it more interactive, I had this idea of like just giving students for each module, there are four modules, the option of doing the traditional route. So watching my lectures online, doing the multiple choice exam online, or completely actually in, inspired by your transistor radio uh, example for the module that involves learning how a neuron sends a signal uh, to actually build their own spike box and be able to capture a signal on an earthworm or a cockroach or themselves <laughs> and explain it to me. And they would get an automatic A. <laughs> and yeah, like, I never would have, I never would have considered that if it wasn't for COVID-19 and, and also reading your book. <laughs> but I wonder then the kind of pushback I'm going to get from people who, I, I don't know, like it, it makes me a little nervous thinking about uh, because there is this sense that we all have to have this fundamental competency. And how do you uh, assess that in this project based way? Yeah, so the issue is that we have to trust collective human judgment informed by evidence. So the, the opportunity is for perhaps some of your peers to look at the student projects and to say, does this meet uh, what we would consider our performance standard for a credit. So you begin to have a kind of community of practice looking at problems of practice in education and developing an alternative to the Scantron. So for a long time, we've only relied on data, right? We've become data-driven. 
Data is always quantitative. Well, what about the qualitative? What about evidence through a project? How do you know if somebody has a good character? That's not data. That's evidence. You look for evidence of their behaviors. So I talk about being evidence-based, which includes data, but not being merely data-driven. And interestingly, what I have found is that if we think about the, the world we are in today, and I mean COVID aside for the moment, we are no longer in a knowledge economy. Knowledge has been commoditized, growing exponentially, changing constantly on every internet-connected device. The world simply no longer cares how much your students know. What they care about is what your students can do with what they know, which is a completely different and brand new education problem because it is in fact the innovation era. Yes, you need knowledge, but that's not enough. Necessary, but not sufficient. You need to know how to apply it. You need how to solve problems creatively. So I would argue, and I have solid evidence from my previous books, particularly my book, Creating Innovators, that the students who come up with creative solutions to the problem you've given them will end up being better innovators and more highly employable and employed than the students who just go through the droning on and on with a multiple choice test. Yeah, I loved that statement. You know, what matters most is not what you know, but what you can do with what you know. Because I, I think you're you're exactly right that especially now that we have um, Google at our fingertips, you know, anybody can find a, a fact uh, or a piece of information online, and yet we are have you know unprecedented ignorance <laughs> on what to do with those facts, as this pandemic has has demonstrated. You know, it's. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's to me, that's a really interesting um, conundrum. And I wonder if, if you have any advice for, for parents or for educators of how they can, you know, what are, are, are there any practical tips that you can give us to ensure that our children and our students know how, what to do with the information rather than just learning the information on its own? Well, I think every class should incorporate a time for projects at the end of the semester where students have to apply what they've learned to a problem or to a question that interests them, either individually or in a team. Uh, You know, Google, 20% of every employee's time at Google is time to work on projects of their choice, the equivalent of a day a week. And so I think we really can learn from that because Google and other companies, it's not just Google, have discovered that when you when you give employees time to work on projects, they bring a kind of passion, a kind of persistence, going back to our earlier uh, conversation about tenacity and so on, to pursuing these projects. And most of Google's breakthroughs, the new the products that we enjoy using so much, are the result of these passion projects. So I think that's applicable in virtually every course uh, at any level of schooling. So that would, to me, would be a start where we're really trying to nurture students' curiosity, but also help them develop the intrinsic self-discipline, the perseverance, the tenacity to take a, a, a body of information and sort of align it with a question or a problem that particularly interests them and see what they can create, what they can do with what they know. You know, it's interesting. You, and you talk, I think, a lot about employability, of course, in the innovation era. As you may know, Google only hired for many years kids from Ivy League schools, and they only interviewed those with the highest GPAs and test scores, believing that was the way to find the smartest kids in the world to come work for Google. 
Well, along comes Laszlo Bach, senior VP of people operations. He does the analysis that no one had ever done. He discovers that all the indices they had been using were, quote, worthless, unquote. He went on to say, the skills you need to succeed in a highly competitive academic environment bear no relationship to the skills you need to succeed at Google. So right now today, Google doesn't ask you where you went to college. In fact, they don't ask for your transcript. They don't even care if you went to college. 15% of Google's new hires don't have a BA degree. What are they looking for? Kids who know how to solve problems. Kids who who have, can explain a time when they failed and had to get up again and try again. So I want to take a moment and remind our listeners that Tony Wagner's memoir, Learning by Heart, An Unconventional Education, is available at booksellers everywhere. Um, I have two more questions for you. One that uh, I think is a good one and the other one that breaks my heart that I have to ask, but I feel like I do anyway. So <laughs> I'll make that one last so that listeners can tune out if they want to before we get to the answer. But the, this first question is, I think, one that is probably on the minds of a lot of parents and, and, and hopefully teachers, too, that right now we have a lot of kids who are isolated. And especially if they don't have siblings, they don't have an opportunity to play with their peers. And as you mentioned, this playing um, you know, is such a key feature of how kids learn. In fact, I was really struck by how you describe that when kids play together, they become less egocentric. And this is something that really worries me about the effects of this pandemic. Are we essentially creating a situation in which a lot of these kids are going to become continuously more egocentric? And I don't mean that the outcome is they're going to be all full of themselves. In fact, quite the opposite, that they will that they will not develop the sense of um, morality and fairness and, and all of these key features that tend to be developed on, on the playground. Well, I think you're right. And, you know, my hope and expectation is that this is a temporary crisis, and it's not going to set kids back if for a few months they don't have a chance to play with friends. And as I mentioned earlier, it is an opportunity for parents and teachers to nurture kids' curiosity, to give them opportunities to learn through projects. Uh, so there are trade-offs. Uh, but I, I agree with you. I think if, if we had a prolonged period, years, say, of real social isolation, there's a potential, there's a, a real problem with that. I mean, I th you know, I asked that question because I think a lot of parents right now are trying to weigh the risks of sending their kids to summer camps, you know, with uh, safety precautions versus keeping them at home. And, you know, for my own kid, I just feel like, you know, the risk is pretty low and the gain of spending time outdoors with peers is so big. But maybe I'm, you know, misreading the risks. I don't know. It just seems to me like really important. <laughs> I do agree with you, but I think each parent has to decide for themselves, based on evidence, what is the nature of the risk and uh, what's at stake? You know, where is the camp? What is the immediate environment around it in terms of percentage of cases? Uh, what precautions are the, are the camps taking? I mean, all the schools and outdoor camp people that I know, and I sort of have a foot in each world, are acutely aware of the risk, and I think are taking tremendous precautions if in fact they open at all. So here comes the question that I hate to have to ask, um, but after spending uh, a lot of time in various faculty meetings, after you know just seeing how much educators, even at the same institution, disagree in terms of pedagogy, 
and knowing that there's been a huge disconnect between uh, people who study sort of, uh, you know, cognitive neuroscience or learning and memory from the experimental psychology side and people who work in the schools of education, you know, there's still so much disconnect between people who have the same goal and yet, you know, still you know, it seems like there's there's just these bubbles uh, that that people stick to. And I and I wonder if you have any thoughts or advice or, you know, experience in how to open up the dialogue, how to help educators be just better at, um, you know, accepting new ideas and, and changing their own pedagogical strategies. Well, that's a key question and one that I've worked on in a long time and I've also written about. Uh, to me, the, the ac- world of academia mirrors t- too often the larger world that we're in, which is a world that is increasingly politicized and polarized. And is and both worlds are not sufficiently evidence-based in their inquiries. How do we know when one form of teaching works better than another? Well, in fact, no one form of teaching does work better than any other. Now, I tell the story <laughs> in my memoir where I thought I was the cat's meow and I'd figure out the best way to teach, which was to do anything but lecture. And then I discovered that, in fact, the teacher who is most beloved in <laughs> the school where I was teaching lectured, lectured small groups of kids. And I couldn't freaking believe it. And so I, in fact, discovered that what really was beneath his lecturing was a deep caring for individual kids, as well as a deep passion for his subject. But beyond that, I think the real issue here is to be more evidence-based. And by that, I mean for us to really inquire, have our students really learn what we think they've learned one year out, three years out. What do recent graduates say about their education? In what ways did they feel most well-prepared, least well-prepared? What would their advice to teachers be? And I'm not making this up. I've actually done these these kinds of focus groups. And you videotape them and you bring them back to the faculty meetings. Say, this is what our students are saying. And then you also do the same thing with employers. You ask employers, in what ways were our recent graduates most well-prepared, least well-prepared? What would your advice be? What are your needs are? And civic leaders, so that we just don't have the employer's perspective. And from my point of view, all of those are kinds of evidence we need to think about as we try to dramatically reimagine uh, our forms of teaching and learning. We're rarely, we, we rely perhaps on test scores, if anything, which as we all know, are a very, very poor indicator of most anything. And instead should be relying on a much broader set of evidence, which is actually readily available. I've, I've done it. I've done those kinds of focus groups with employers and recent grads. And what you've learned from them is really powerful. And it has the added advantage of making the debate less ideological because most teachers in some way, shape or form care about their students and they care about what happens to their students. Uh, it isn't just a passion for the content, although that may be predominantly the case in higher ed, but in certainly in secondary school, uh, teachers profess to care about their kids. Well, this is evidence for the heart. There's evidence for the head and there's evidence for the heart. The evidence for the head, obviously, is employability. What percentage of your grads actually had a job, get a job within three to five years of graduating who 
the, a job that actually pays a BA wage. I'm not talking about BA restas, BAR tenders, which is the norm for college grads. Kids are earning uh, way below a BA wage. Uh, so the point is to not just look at that kind of data. That's hard data. You can you can find that out. According to the Wall Street Journal, only about 43% of our, uh, I mean, as many as 43% of our recent college grads, this was three years ago, had a job that actually required a real BA. So then there's evidence for the heart, which are students talking about their experiences and what made the greatest difference to them and what they wished they had gotten that they didn't get. And so I think we need both data for the head and evidence for the heart uh, to begin to frame a different conversation in education at every single level. Tony Wagner, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. It's been a great pleasure. Yes, wonderful questions, which always makes it lots of fun. So I have never felt more confident in sending my kid to an outdoor summer camp earlier this week where he can practice social distancing or physical distancing, as I think the term should actually be used, and get outside with a bunch of his peers and learn things that I failed to teach him in three months of Zoom school. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer-Ewald, and Charles Bile. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis, and I'll see you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.